0: Welcome to the Fan Engagement Pod, a new conversation about fan engagement. Don't forget you can join the Fan Engagement Network at faninsights.co.uk forward slash network forward slash join for exclusive member services and benefits.
1: The stuff is the is the stuff is the
0: Welcome to episode 32 of the Fan Engagement Pod, a chat with Mark Bradley from the Fan Experience Company. Mark doesn't need much introduction to people from English football or increasingly European football, given his UEFA-funded grow work across the continent. We chat extensively about the roots of his work, from starting off at the Halifax Building Society, Progressive Customer Service, and developing the fan journey with the Premier League and then the EFL. One of the big issues we do cover... Is one that i've been talking about increasingly with colleagues in the industry have match going habits been broken permanently because of covid and will this lead off lead to a drop-off in attendances has the behavior of clubs towards fans throughout the pandemic made this even more likely Don't forget we've got loads of other episodes, including the new Buzz Chat, where we take a particular look at activation, sponsorships and partnerships between brands and rights holders with a real expert in the field. A new episode is currently out with new ones every last Thursday of every month and the normal Fan Engagement Pod is out every Tuesday. Listen to all of that via the usual channels and search Fan Engagement Pod if you want. You can join the fan engagement network at faninsights.co.uk/network/join. forward slash Look, Mark. I mean, I I can't I can't claim to know you really, really well, but I know you a bit. We've we've known each other probably probably to some extent. I think I've probably got got to know you a little bit better since I left supporters direct, um, in which I <laughs> which I'm always banging on about the 2015. I mean, it's been a long time on there. Yeah. But yeah. I know. Um, i know that you um you you got to know professionally got to know supporters direct and you knew dave boyle yeah that's right yeah who who obviously was there at the start of the organization and became its chief executive etc um and you there's there's some sort of i think there are some very much some complementary parallels in in slightly different areas of the industry in the way that you came around and about you know how you emerged and your expertise became very influential in the EFL and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and particularly I think after Lord marwinnie turned up was when things yeah. began to change in that area from my perception. Certainly they were yeah. much more engaging towards us and that kind um, In a very form in a much more formal as I'd say. But why I suppose what's interesting is what you know what are the roots of all of this because whole um fan engagement fan experience um customers super customers stakeholder part stakeholder part customer all this sort of stuff where does all this kind of come from for you because you came from outside of football despite being obviously a, a Sunderland fan of your life but you came from outside of football and you looked at football and went hang on a minute why is that not being done why is that being done so mm-hmm. just give us a little bit of a, a tour of your of your roots really and where, where this has all come from
1: yeah, I mean, I think like like many people, I, I didn't have a profession, I never had a vocation, you know, I was um, from County Durham, uh, parents, you know, working class, for want of a better term, just wanted their kids to get a good education, there's probably many people like that. So the be all and end all for me was, was getting to university, I never really thought about what I wanted to do beyond university, and um, so I kind of, as a result of that, I kind of floated for a few years. Eventually, found myself at the Halifax Building Society, which then obviously became a bank. As those of us old enough old enough will remember, might also we might also remember that it's now something like ooh, 32 years since First Direct uh, appeared. So I think that was 1988, and 10 years later, I found myself in in the Halifax, where um, every competitor was providing the same service. There's some parallels with football here but that's not the point of telling you this but you know interest rates were set by centrally so you know you couldn't say right here's a new mortgage it's going to be half the interest rate that everybody else has so you had to find ways of differentiating and because manufacturing was becoming less of a focus and the service industry was beginning to um, emerge um, we needed to try and find a way to stand out and be different and um, we entered the service excellence awards which at the time were run by Management Today magazine and um and, and that brought me into contact with um, with uh, Henry, the guy behind um, uh, the Happy Computers, Henry Stewart. He tried to, I think he was behind the Sunday Independent, I think it might have been called that, a newspaper that didn't last very long. He was one of the founders of that paper, but he's a, he's a really interesting guy. I mean, nat- naturally a philanthropist, but he had some really interesting ideas about the way organizations were designed. An innocent me had never come across the idea of designing an organization. You know, somebody explained it to me at the time of being like a sports car or a racing car. You know, if you want to try and shave half a second off your off your lap time, then it might be the weight of the screws that are connecting this to that. You know, can you see an organization in the same way? If you have a, a very clear objective of what you want to try and do or all parts of the organization looking forward so on the one hand you'd get some interesting um management theorists like dave jackson who who was at uh sales he he founded um uh click tools which then was bought by um the uh what were they called there's a big sales crm company but anyway dave's way of explaining it was when you look at shoals of fish or you look at flocks of geese and I bet none of the listeners would expect to be hearing this at this time in a football podcast but you know the one at the front just makes a slight movement to the right and everybody instinctively follows so there's a movement from the mid to late 90s that suggested that actually if we could get leaders that saw businesses this way they could then redesign their organizations around the need of a customer it's now all about the customer and that's where the interest came. So I went from working at the Halifax as being that kind of rep when it came to cultural benchmarking and organisational design benchmarking. So we entered the Service Excellence Awards in the late 90s. We never expected to be winning, but it gave us a chance to be part of that community. And in that period, I met a guy uh, also called John Hughes, who had left the Birmingham Midshires when the Halifax took them over. John had some interesting views about organizational design and and you could call it service excellence so everything that you do to prioritize the customer within your business and so that that kind of for the first time in my in my life i actually thought i'm interested in this this is this this is interesting i've got no formal qualification but when i left the halifax with redundancy in the year 2000 i then worked for a small um network it was called customer service network and it's still around today where businesses paid an annual subscription to get advice to do uh, site visits to be able to talk to other members all around the subject of service excellence that led to me writing a couple of books on the subject um both from the perspective of the customer and i guess to finish this little introduction what it what what i became really interested in was the idea of Of facilitating the speed of organizational design and the change of businesses' attitudes towards it by taking the view of the customer. And that's when it kind of began, the idea began to hatch in the the early noughties that perhaps there was an opportunity, perhaps through writing articles, through keynotes, through writing books, and perhaps doing some consultancy of using real customer experiences to shine a light on actually these opportunities. So you know, you spend you know we that first book I wrote in convenience stores back in 2004 was basically a a calendar of our life as a family me anna and the two kids who would have been around what at the time 9 and 6 9 and 5 and and just what happened to us so what supermarkets did we go to what was it like what did we feel about them and whether it was possible to kind of um to kind of to to infer from those experiences the extent to which those organizations were consciously thinking about organizational design. And it's clear some were and some weren't. In those, in those early days, we you'd see businesses like uh, Timpson's and you know, John Timpson and his son James now, who runs the business, they were able to put this idea of organizational design in, uh, into, it, into words that made it very simple. So they'd say, look at any h- hierarchical chart. At the top, you have the CEO and at the bottom, you have the customer facing staff and everybody gets paid according to their position in that hierarchy. Now that the customer prevails, the customer's at the bottom of that hierarchy. Actually, what they did was they turned it right around and they said, look, if the customer's at the top, the people who are most important in our business are our staff that are serving the customers. So we need to redesign our whole organisation that makes them the number one people so obviously we'll flatten the organization in terms of the size of the hierarchy but we'll give them information we'll give them freedom we'll give them support you know for example James Timpson was tweeting during the recent bad weather that you know hi guys and he's always messaging the people who are out there on the front line it's bad today don't worry about being late for work the customers are going to understand because they're going to be late for work too They would do things like give them the freedom to do, you know, so not not kind of an organized thing, like perhaps you'll find in some businesses where let's do random acts of kindness. And then they'll say, do them on a Tuesday and a Thursday, by definition, taking away the random element. What James and his father, John, were doing with Timsons was trying to design that into the business so that, you know, somebody might come in with a broken heel on their way to work. And, and that gets fixed for free just because it's a good thing to do. And when that person then has a watch that needs repairing or once, uh, you know, once their new shoes are sold and healed, they might come there. So in, in a kind of, you know, that that's what brought me to this interest in the customer experience. Can I um, can, I'm, um,
0: I keep looking away? I'm making notes as we're talking because there's a lot of stuff there. Um, and I want to try to sort of, as they say, unpack a few bits of it. Yeah. The bit I suppose it's interesting just to pick something out slightly at random. I mean, but it, you know, it's it's there's, there's like I said, there's plenty there. It strikes me that a lot of a lot of what passes for, or a lot of what is often understood as being good customer service, good treatment of let's let's put it this way for for, for, for sport and football listeners, good treatment of your primary user. Right, let's just be yeah, de- customer yeah. a little bit, just, just, just to kind of, you know, um, to me, it tends to be you might call it gimmick, but I think it tends to come from. There's a period, and you worked in business, so you'll know this better than me. And you worked in banking, you know, and, and building societies, is there's a period where kind of instead of seeing businesses as having um, customers. As having users who would be the primary person that would access the service or good or whatever it was, it was it was almost as though what you needed to do was to market to these people. You needed to drive their interest in the business, and you needed to get them to buy as much as you possibly yeah. could get them to buy. And actually, that that's when you get the let's add the random acts of kindness because you're kind of trying to reverse engineer mm-hmm. a good culture into a business that doesn't really understand it because it's just by its entire nature or by the culture of the last sort of 30 years Mm -hmm. where we've just where you know a lot of local stuff has been dismantled doesn't it a lot of local businesses have disappeared and you know things like nuanced financial services for example and to say it's nuanced is ridiculous but it's true you know things like building societies having a different ethos in the way they manage the relationship between the people who save with them and and themselves you know all of these things you're then trying to create an ecosystem that you sort of dismantled and i don't think this is a political point it's just true mm. and and then it becomes quite clunky doesn't it and then when you get and i think greg's are another company who do it from from my understanding do it quite well then then when you're trying to to re-engineer it um you've got so few examples and <clears throat> worse still i suppose you've got a lack of leaders who understand it
1: yeah um Mm -hmm. and
0: that filters through into every area of industry doesn't it not just customer facing you know it then filters into other areas
1: right you're dead right i mean the 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 way that the service excellence awards run and i don't think they run now i think they continued into about 2005, 2006, by which time we'd started our business, you know, the, which was actually Mark Bradley Projects because the intention when we set off was to work across the whole business sector, as you just asked, because it's applicable everywhere. We we were seeing service excellence, not just in terms of a traditional business to consumer, but business to business, um, education, the voluntary sector, um, government sector, manufacturing, um, banking, retail, you know, they, they were all in there. And although it looked different in terms of the specifics, there were exactly the same um, fundamentals behind it. And there were there were four kind of fi- um, fundamental uh, pillars, if you like. And you you'll have noticed that we still, you know, as a business now talk about these four pillars, albeit slightly reworded for football. There's the leadership element. You know that you can't say one thing and do another. I think we're we're beyond that time now. The the focus on leaders is they have to be the right leader. I mean, my brother-in-law works for British Gas and they're they're on strike as of today. Uh, It's good to see BBC, um, just to date this, we're we're talking on the 7th of January. Um, The company are saying there's only weak support for this strike, but 86% of the the gas workers have, 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 have voted for it. Now, there's not a great deal of leadership being demonstrated there but in a business like Timpsons you have that leadership where people see that it's genuine that it's a reflection of the personality of the person in charge and not something they've kind of read out of a book the second area is is the 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 people side you know and and actually you know if you're going to set out to create you know these days this is what you have to do a kind of a real genuine emotional relationship connection with customers then you have to do it through your own people first and a lot of businesses don't get that uh, Pret, Pret I would I would uh, and I haven't spoken to anyone at Pret for several years but it was always a key part of their of their business to um, recruit people who fitted into that you know nature so it wasn't about the skills that you're going to learn we can teach you how to make sandwiches we can teach you how the business runs but if you don't fit into the kind of way that we treat people you're never going to be a success and so there used to be Pret branches where everyone knew each other or everyone was from the same community, you know, because um the kind of it was the values they had bred very easily among a certain group of people. And I still love the fact that am I might going to King's Cross Pret, actually, i I miss King's Cross Prep because there's usually a couple of Spanish people serving and we have a laugh about translating Victoria's sponge into Spanish because it sounds like a Victorian sea creature, basically, and we always have a laugh. As often as not, they'll say, well, you can have your coffee on me today for making me laugh. And there's there's no mechanism behind that. It's just pure, pure values. And the third one is the experience. You know, we'll talk about that more. And the fourth one is, is the understanding and the intelligence around the customer. You know, where where you come in, the kind of, I mean, obviously you're a public relations professional, uh, and you know all about the need to relate to stakeholder and and that and that was that piece as well so there were effectively four bits and you know when i came into the football first through catherine robinson at the premier league in 2000 2001 when i was still when i was working for customer service network they uh catherine was grappling with the outcome of the um football task force their recommendations the creation of um trying to think of their names again the, um, the foundation support yeah, yeah. The, char- the charter reps in each of the clubs oh, so I see. yeah 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 but catherine and subsequently kathy long um introduced me to to that group of people and obviously they had other jobs to do but many of them could see the opportunity at least of of learning from some of the business that i previously been working with so that's where ideas like you know customer journey moments of truth started to come into the way that they saw their 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 fans experiences and i remember kathy because i've got to give kathy credit for this she she spotted that not one website across the premier league back then and also we found out across any of the football league clubs either had any information for new fans you know there was there was no new fan button or come into the first game or bringing your kids and now you'll see a plethora of, of, of of information for potential new fans and in the case of brentford an entire website for people bringing kids, you know, separate to their official one. And up at Donny Rovers, you've got um, a virtual hub for the mascot, you know, so the mascots now become the channel through which the club communicates with newer supporters, younger supporters and 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 families, leaving the kind of core channels open for people to, you know, have the kind of conversations that you'd expect. So it, it I think when I first started and I first went, you know, look, did the exercise for, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned Dave Ball before, Darren Bernstein, who you'll know, who was at the EFL. It was Darren who was, uh, and Kathy. Kathy, for pointing me at the EFL when I'd left the Customer Service Network, couldn't continue to work, you know, with the, the Premier League, who'd been doing a little bit with us. Um, Kathy mentioned me to the um, EFL because she felt that, look, it's a little bit more existential, the threat for these clubs and in the, in the in the football league anecdotally family experience wasn't great and it was darren bernstein who picked up on that and got us you know doing um family assessments which is still going on well subject to COVID. 14 seasons later and and a lot of that was was seeing that customer journey that customer pathway idea being very very relevant to football but when i tried to look at the rest of that model that i brought from the previous world the leadership the people engagement and the customer intelligence the customer engagement i didn't see any of it there at all and actually if i'm honest with you my thoughts were, and we have to go right back to square one here we have to get them to think you know these people are the users the customers customers not a great word and as fans we don't like to be called customers but unless you recognize that that's a, a rep, those people are at the center of your business and unless you're designed to make them feel proud of their club to feel connected to feel that they can forgive you on social media when you get things wrong to feel actually just inside that you've got their best interests at heart then you know you you ham you know you you're hamstringing your chances of uh, growing, growing your club
0: hi i just want to take a quick moment to tell you about match day digital the world's first Football First digital magazine platform, bringing together premium paid content from clubs, match day programmes, popular football magazines, newspapers and high quality fan produced fanzines. It's quite the list. Uh, Matchday Day Digital brings football content and supporters together in a single app, which allows clubs and other publishers to deliver their content to a much wider audience than they would through their own print or digital sites and apps. All especially relevant, obviously, during this Covid era. You can download the app on Google Play and Apple Store. Go to matchdaydigital.co.uk for more. And if you're a club, drop the fellas over there a line. They're really friendly and I'm sure they'd love a chat with you about your needs. Let me come to the, 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 the I suppose the interesting bit with football and, uh, and you know, many other sports, but let's, you know, zoom in on football yeah. is that, that, that two of those pillars, the customer element and the engagement element, are much more, if not, if not merged, then certainly very overlapping in that. Obviously, obviously, you know, a lot of a lot of a lot of purchase decisions aren't aren't simply rational. We I appreciate that because yeah. we make lots of slightly irrational decisions. But the reason that I'd say those two overlap and possibly even are in a sense merged and have to be understood in that way is in is that um, we're making we are make, we are doing something that looks like that there is a customer um activity, action, user activity and action, and we are spending some money on something. but half the more than half the time or you know most of the time, that tends to be motivated by an irrational it's 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 sometimes it's almost beyond love of yeah,
1: this yeah, yeah.
0: institution that captured our interest or excitement at some point, quite often when yeah. we were kids. And that we cling to sometimes, depending on how things are going, that we cling to as yeah. part of our identity. I talk about that myself. It's, you know, my club is very much part of my identity because of moving away yeah. from Wimbledon when I was an 11-year-old. And that, you know, and and that means that I me paying £55 a month or whatever it is for mine and my son's season ticket that I'm never going to use,
1: mm.
0: it's a totally irrational decision. Absolutely. But as you say and this is where i this is where i think it's really important to get the understanding into people i think probably at leadership levels and particularly and and ownership levels is that that they need to understand that yeah we're making a purchase of something but there is no rationality and you're not and if you try to screw me down Mm i i might go a lot further than i would be prepared to do with others but then my response will often be something kind of almost quite political. I might organise against you if you push me too far. Do you know what I mean? So all of those things. So the interesting bit, Mark, is you must get, sometimes get, and I don't think this, but there must be some people who go, yeah, look, whatever, mate. Do your customer stuff. Yeah. Um, But this is football and almost a sense of, you know, you get this contradictory kind of response sometimes. I think about cu- the customer supported journey stuff, which is, um, I don't want to be treated like a customer. Stop treating me like that. Well, you've got to make a compromise here. You've got to understand that you are a a super customer, as Baz Baz Schneider calls it, or you know, yeah. part yeah. stakeholder, part irrational customer. Yeah. So yeah. you 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 it must be sometimes quite difficult for you to. To navigate that because you'll be getting complaints sometimes, I think, from fans, as well as a sort of resistance from clubs.
1: Yeah, yeah. Sometimes. I think that 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 is one of the that's at the heart of, of of some of the resistance you get, particularly from from club leaders, you know, who believe it is actually all about the football. And it is uh, to 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 the extent that you've described, you've got that that description, whether it's explained by social identity theory or just the fact that you're a football fan. You know, and that, I think that stands up by itself as a as a kind of a theory, um, and it in in our experience in the early days, I remember um, a couple of people. I remember somebody at the FSF, you know, thought that we were. I mean they didn't say this but they were kind of implying that we were part of this move to gentrify football and to get all the core fans out and to replace them with middle-class families from cheshire you know that sort of thing and i was quite shocked by that i could see where that came from but it took it blindsided me because i thought yeah actually i started wondering whether the people that were trusting me in football were actually using us for that but then i began to speak to fans and we did work at at clubs around the country in particular Working for a while at Doncaster Rovers, and that gave us a chance to chat to, you know, to 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 the um, to the longest and most loyal, you know, groups of fans that were in that club, and to to talk about them and and their experiences with the club, and we even got as far as carrying out a few experiments, um, in as much as, um, you know, we Darren Young, who works, at, you know, with me at um, the Fan Experience Company. Darren's MBA is all about customer measurement and customer surveys this is well before darren and i were working together we simply took net promoter which everybody was getting excited about in business and since the 90s and applied it to football just and it just as an experiment because i'd always felt uncomfortable with the idea a lot of american sports use this they take net promoter and they say based on your recent experiences with with the club you know, how how likely are you to strongly recommend us to friends and family, you know, and it's a 0 to 10 scale, and those that mark 9 or 10, you know, are going to renew, not only are they great advocates, but they're going to renew, and the data appeared to support this, so everybody realized that this was a way to switch on this kind of latent ability in businesses to learn about organizational design, let's give them net promoter, and they can start you know they can start basically measuring customer service and they can they, they've now got a business case for, for, for service excellence, which is something else we could talk about. Um, but then but at Donnie, what we found, and this was over a period of time, over a 13 or 14 month period, where they were at the bottom of the championship, they got relegated, or is it was it league one and league two? It might have been league one and league two, but they started in league in league one, they then got relegated. And then at the end of the following season, I think you remember it was that Brentford game, you know, where Brentford missed the penalty in the last minute and Donny ran down the pitch and scored and got promoted. So, I mean, we didn't do a survey right after that, but you know that people would be, would be instinctively happy and they would say anything. But when we said, you know, think about your, you know, there, were, there were other questions like you were getting a survey, not just the one. We, you, you know, these days I would say, give a rating, say why and what could improve it. That's all you need you know, to ask really but back then we did the surveys every quarter and we asked okay what how strongly would you recommend the club to friends and family that live in Doncaster or are interested in football but who have never been here before so it's kind of a you know a little bit of um, poetic license but it was effectively the net promoter question and then what you do is you take those who score you nine or ten and from that you subtract the percentage who score you no to six you ignore the sevens and the eights because they're the satisfied and there's ever been any evidence to show that anyone who's satisfied will either stay or not stay with the organization so what we found was that that figure was about plus three or plus four so there's some you know there's residual if you like engagement and advocacy among the fan base um but when we then reworded the question and on alternative surveys instead of asking the rec- the recommendation question we asked based on your recent experiences, blah, 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 how personally valued do you feel as a supporter of Doncaster Rovers Football Club? When we then did it on a 0-10 scale and did all the maths, we ended up at minus 60. (laughs) So you've got effectively the same question of the same group of people, where one rating is plus three, the other is minus 60. And I'm not pretending to be a kind of a data scientist here. Obviously, there's something of interest. Yes, you could say that maybe the... You know the samples were wrong, or you know this wasn't done on the basis of a scientific. You know uh, it was statistically significant in terms of the numbers of responses, but beyond that, wasn't done by a data scientist or a, or an academic um, or a survey professional. But what we found was that um, a couple of the fans said it perfectly. They said when when you asked me how strongly I'd recommend Doncaster Rovers, I'm not going to recommend Rotherham. <laughs> you know, so there's kind of a, a an exaggerated sense of belonging comes through when you ask that question and they use that question as a way to show in spite of everything and the issues i may have with the way i'm treated you know the elements of the the match day experience such as how poor the food is etc etc i still love this club and you're giving me an opportunity to demonstrate that but when you slightly just change the wording you're actually getting me to think about you're separating out the love from the club from my personal experience and i'm very positively pinpointing ways in which this club could improve and that led to a number of initiatives um, at, at, at that club including handing over the development of the, the 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 area behind the goal one of the stands to a representative group of fans uh, that included martin from the f the fsf at the time fsa now who was um, a donny uh, a donny rover fan he was in the Viking Supports Cooperative, which was kind yeah. of like the official group. But then there were lots of unofficial ones who felt, for, for lots of different reasons, excluded from that process, who were able to get involved. Things like focus groups, things like, you know, uh, various things, the SLOs, the, the having a dedicated away fine SLO, for example, present, you know. And there's a lot of best practice came out of that era. And I'm actually halfway through a blog now that effectively asks the question, you know what's your measure of engagement? If you have a dashboard that you're looking at every Monday or even once a month for a club with that's volunteer and with fewer resources, what is the what is the score, the measure, the rating that tells you how engaged your community is? And you know I, I'm I'm having you know, this is this is how how stupid we are. We're having these kind of kind of existential discussions around should it be should it be recommend should it be how valued the reality is, to my knowledge, hardly any clubs in the EFL, for example, have any rating at all. You know? Well,
0: I mean, if I can, if I can add to, to that and sort of broaden it out a little bit, um, a the you know, the the position that Doncaster were in, I'm not totally, I know things were very different three or four or five years ago. Well, this is uh, seven
1: years ago. So this is yeah, you-
0: exactly maybe, exactly. Maybe even a little bit longer ago, things were very different there. Uh, much more riven with the kind of politics you see in the fan base and between the club and, and representatives. And the reason uh, they were, I think it was third in the fan engagement index, was because just from the, yeah. um, the you know, and, and obviously we do it with um, publicly available information. We don't interrogate the club. It's meant to be what, what would I, it's, it's a bit taken from you, what you do. You know, my journey as a fan trying to understand how the club engages with me as a as a as as a stakeholder in the football club and they score incredibly well and then when you look through the you know the the league table um which is obviously the sort of principal measure you see where the where the weaknesses are and i and i am really you know and i do think they're weaknesses that can be addressed mm-hmm. and, and and i also i think and this would be interesting to you know to look at this is you know i think there i've learned a lot over 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 particularly over the last you know 5 to 10 years that actually the pace that things move at means that it's very difficult to pick up new practice it's very you are subject to you know the 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 whether or not there's some resource available and You know, if I can just be, you know, I don't do criticism if I can help it, if I'm honest. I try to be really positive and -hmm. and engaging. But I do think that uh, that the leagues themselves, and possibly there might be some role for the FA here, but I do think they need to be much less nervous about providing support centrally to clubs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Guide
0: them and very actively guide them to do things better. Because I think that's... You know, clubs just don't have, I find that clubs just don't have the time to think about it.
1: No, I absolutely agree with that. And you've got no. a situation, I mean, I'm sure you, I think you and I agree on this one. But the idea is that, you know, you get, let's just take the EFL, for example, you'll get a lot of, you know, decisions that fans don't like. It might be a specific club, it might be a range of fans and the EFL just get it on social media, you know, just get a load of abuse and trying to, and I know you've done this and i think it's it's good that you do this and you should keep doing this but just reminding people that the that the EFL are actually taking decisions because that's what the clubs have asked them to do you know they're not they're not separate yeah. they're not you know and the the i mean i'm i'm not i'm not um, experienced in governance at all but if you then said to the fans well the alternative is for the EFL to become like the uh, major league baseball to become the the franchise the franchisor who decides who gets to play with the name Doncaster Rovers you know and if we're not happy we'll move it to Plymouth and Plymouth Rovers will be Doncaster you know that that sort of thing Well, or
0: or, or, or of course an, an alternative you know there's there, there's an alternative as another alternative which is you you have um you put you put governance in a place where um an independent regulator and yeah um, which has been called for since the football task force in the late 90s. But you have an independent regulator that makes decisions that I, I have to agree. Clubs are not actually they're either not capable of doing it because they require so much thought and perspective, or it's unfair to expect them to do because they're so focused on their own businesses. You put a regulator in there to make those decisions. And then it frees up clubs to be able to do the things that they need to do and focus on the development of businesses. The trouble is, if that happens, you will have complaints then. And, I mean, I you know the response of a, of a fan is obviously going to be very partisan. But it does, yes, I mean, just briefly touching on that, it does still shock me sometimes just how many, I'll, I'll be frank, apparently knowledgeable people when it comes to banging the drum about reform do not seem to understand that when they bang on about the EFL making a bad decision, they need to be looking at their own club um, and its role or or lack of role, possibly. But it's just I mean, I think there's a general misunderstanding. And and also, I suppose part of the problem is, is, and this is why we we exist in this space, is there are a relatively small number of people preoccupied, focused on, obsessed with, areas of football that are not about results and in the end that this is why what you do is important because at the very least and this you know this is why i i reject criticism of um of the of the supporter journey um, um work that you do and that you know that i've seen have an impact even at my own club it is because you know, when I hear people saying, well, the trouble is we're treated like customers, my response is, I'd like to be treated like a customer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you're, not, you're not being treated and, like... And if I was, yeah. I might have fewer complaints. the <laughs> way yeah. Particularly yeah, yeah. Down and away, so so actually, you know, this, for me, the, the uneasiness of, of, mm. of the customer journey sitting within the space of football, well, yeah, well, you can amend the language. Actually, what you've done, I've found, is... Now, when I turn up to a match, and you know whether it's a direct result or whether it's because what you've done as a as a as a as a, as an individual and an organisation, mm-hmm. the Fair experience company working with clubs in the way you have in the EFL, is that now when I turn up to a game, whenever that's going to be again, but you know, people I get I get greeted in, so I get acknowledged yeah. by stewards. They like, lo- and it's it's yeah. helpful that it's at a club like Winwich lot smaller kind of stuff. But it didn't used to happen and actually some of these initiatives that are either directly as a result of your work or yeah. are born as a result of it and have flowed from that have had a palpable impact and it is yeah. really important that that stuff yeah. shouldn't be an issue should it it shouldn't no, be
1: I, I mean one thing under the heading of kind of leadership and, and identity i think that's that's been really positive is that smaller clubs you know those without the time the resource um to to perhaps spend a lot of time contemplating the various things that they could do um begin to realize that because they're smaller they by definition have a stronger identity it's easier to describe the fans can articulate it and they then realize there are things they can do with that which by definition makes them different to other clubs and i'm not talking about the kind of extreme examples of you know for example i don't know um Lewis or Sampauli or Dulwich Hamlet or Clapton Ultras you know that sort of thing but actually your your small club out there in in the community that that actually stands for something that you can describe and I think this is the, the, the thing there's a, there's a kind of a little line where you know you've got the Barcelona's of this world that are, that are you know member owned and uh, but they're very generic in terms of what their values are and how they can be inter- understood and interpreted And there's a point at which you start to lose parts of your fan base if you start to become very specific. I mean, Bohemians, for example, you know, that um, they've done an incredible job uh, among a group of clubs that you could wish to support in Dublin of being unique and different and having a political voice, standing for something, supporting refugee charities, standing up at the women's right uh, referendum. And... um, that that's a choice that a club can make any club can make that choice to do that knowing that they'll become by definition probably a a subculture club you know and then there are other clubs that are probably quite my own club Sunderland i mean we would go as far as fans are saying right we're about hard work we're about shipbuilding and mining culture we're about hard tackling defensive midfielders that get lots of yellow cards and and get sent off you know that's that's kind of what i think a Sunderland fan would say but I think if you start taking the Sunderland fandom into kind of socialism, trade unionism, which is a natural direction you might want to go given the history of the city, you do then put yourself into a corner a little bit, which is, you know, it's it's more, so I understand why some clubs, you know, will go further than others when it comes to defining what their identity is. But I think like, as you were saying there, for the smaller club in inverted commas, that's, that's um, you know, out there in a town, a provincial town, that, that might be in League One or League Two or in the in the National League um, identity is is a real opportunity because they'll have elements that bigger clubs can't have accessibility, for example, being able to, you know, travel, travel to the game on a bus with one of the players, you know, that used to happen in the 50s with the with the top tier, they can do that. And I, and I get the other thing as well. I think you touched on is that there was a fifth pillar back in the days of service excellence that, that that came in. It wasn't one of the original four, but it came in, and it stayed there. And it was the idea of organisational agility. And you know what used to talk about was well, yeah, there might be you know there might be a recession, there might be an economic collapse, there might be at a micro level we might have a, com- a competitor that emerges that's better than us. But actually, no one has change like football. You know, because I mean, again, Sunderland, what a good example in the Premier League for 10 years and then within two years in League One. And now we've been there for for three seasons, you know, so it's kind of. um, And I don't see football at a macro and a micro level doing much to help people understand change, understand agility and to prepare themselves for it. You know, how do other businesses deal with it? It's not just a question of getting rid of all your staff and then rehiring them. I mean, you know, putting your SLO on furlough is just self-defeating for me. The one person who you should be continuing to employ, or at least, you know, whoever fulfills that role, the person who liaises with fans, who is the fan's contact, um, you know, why would you do that? And Sunderland have just done that, they, you know, they're, they're, and he's brilliant. You know, our, our, our furlough, our SLO mm. is, is one of the best ones there is in terms of being mm-hmm. honest and opening and up front and, and helping and working with the best interests of the club. But he's now furloughed. So, you know, basically what the club is saying is, you know, there's no, I'm I'm afraid there are no inquiries now. <laughs> you know, So if you have an issue or a problem, there's no one available to help you for the next few months. Now, I'm sure they will have people there, but it just shows you that, you know, there's a lot of work still to be done.
0: Can I, I'd like to sort of, you know, um, as with a number of my guests, most of them, I could end up speaking for hours on end. And that you are probably one of those particular people that I could do that with because we've worked in this space for so long. There's so much that we do that you know that crosses over and so many things that we so many experiences are probably very similar. The the bit that I just wanted to very quickly touch on before we left because of the dread that you know the the it's not an elephant in the room. We all know it's there and we have to deal with it on a daily basis. But um I noticed you've done a little bit of uh you've been doing some work trying to encourage people to think about COVID and the return whenever that happens which yeah probably is going to be somewhere towards the last quarter of this year. Possibly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the yeah, big. Yeah. The big thing being, um, being the return and you've done some work on that. What it was something that just popped up with a chat with Amanda Jackson, the FSF the other day, the FSA, sorry, I've got to get it right. Um, and it, you know, it was about actually and we were just chatting towards the end of our conversation about you know what what is going to change? How are people going to view their clubs after this? Has this given them time to think very differently to potentially reduce their involvement financially speaking? And that, you know, the, the it's a, not simply um also financial decisions, but actually kind of, you know, what are we gonna are there gonna be some is there gonna be more distance between some people and football? Will that affect our financial decisions as well as being Covid yeah. has reduced financially, has, has reduced people's income and and stuff like that. So, do you see a genuine? You know, do you have a genuine concern that perhaps a lot of clubs are not thinking about? Understandably, perhaps, but this is part of how football tends to be anyway. Of it's not thinking beyond the next few months, if you're lucky, um and actually they need to start thinking now and doing now, making sure that these relationships are are Tended and looked after, yeah. And that this is going to have an impact on their business post post COVID.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I know times ahead of us, but two 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 things I'll say. So if I if I don't remember the second one, just remind me. But you know, you've obviously got. I think the ONU said 1.5 billion people around the world are going to lose their their job as a result of COVID. A lot of these people will be football fans in in the UK because of the nature of football in this country. So a lot of them will have reasons not to renew just simply financial reasons not to review then you've got health reasons sure we're going to get the vaccine you know we're much luckier than people we work with such as the moldovan fa where you know they might be lucky to get it for the autumn you know so football will continue to be decimated until then um so you've got health concerns so even if you know the vaccine is on its way out some people will be thinking twice you then got the kind of the fans that take the, the, the German approach, unless we're all back, none of us are coming back. You've got the fans who will not want a post-COVID experience. You know, I want to have a drink. I want to be able to have a pie. And I want to be able to hug, as my friend Jim Wiltshire says, hugging a, a complete stranger in the away end when we score a last-minute equaliser. Um, but I think you've also got a group that have lost the habit. And I've got no, you know, actual data on it, other than a- anecdotal stuff. Friends of mine, you know, Darren, who's dad's a Walsall fan, you know, and, and, and people we know, you know, who will, who will say, actually I've I've taken up golf or I go for a long walk with my family or I do this, I do that, I do the other. Now I'm not suggesting they're all going to abandon football, but I think the cumulative impact of that is such that we're not going to go back to where we were. We're going to go back to a different place. And the extent to which you've thought about the the things that, that that you shared and that you support leagues and clubs with, Kevin, is this idea, how engaged are you, for want of a better word, with your fan base, will dictate, I think, to a greater extent, the percentage of those people that will think, but yeah, but they do, you know, they have done this, they have done that, they've been in touch, they've tried it. So I think it is going to be an issue. And the second part, and I think this is is something really interesting, and that is, you could look at this in a different way. Look at one specific group of fans, and that is fans who, for example, are disabled. And think about how well they've been engaged with digitally and otherwise by their clubs in this period. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that clubs have done it well or they've done it badly. I've not looked into it with any, you know, um, not spent much time on it yet. But I have a feeling a lot of clubs have reverted to type during this period. They've communicated through social media. They've thanked fans for giving them their... But how many of them have tried to make try to make it easy for disabled fans for example to continue to feel part of the club during a period where you know they can only access through digital and, and may even not be able to access through digital so it's only a small thing but i think well what you and i know about football it's probably it's probably been left to one side and so that group of fans for example they're going to be wondering well what about me so in answering your question i'd say yeah, I don't think clubs have thought about it a lot. Um, I think that, you know, we are going to, I think I would characterise it. I think Darren said to me the other day that we'll get a boost. So, you know, as capacity levels begin to increase, let's say you've got a club with a 10,000 stadium that normally get three and a half thousand. I think when there are 2,000 seats for sale, you're probably going to sell them out as we go through this vaccination period. But as it gets closer to their average attendance than last season, I think I think you're not going to see... I think in lots of clubs we won't reach that that level you know it's uh i mean we know also we also know um that a couple of the clubs that participated in the pilot in october they were um i think a couple of clubs that you would have well expected two thousand seats to be sold had to ring around to, to get fans that you know to to actually come and be part of that when ordinarily they might have fifteen thousand people in the stadium so I think the danger is that clubs make assumptions about you know thousands of joyful fans returning might not actually be right i think there will be a boost but then it the response to that question well a lot will depend on the response to the question that you just posed